Well, if you brought a Bible, go ahead and open it to the book of Matthew. And you are using one of these in your pew or under the seat in front of you. Page 808 is where we will be. Uh, just a, a reminder, uh, perhaps even for, for those maybe be maybe uh, visiting or just um, yeah, this is the time in our service where we give special attention uh, to the, to God's word. We where we want to hear from Him, hear His hear His word um, proclaimed, and um, as sort of is the flow of our service from our call to worship to our confession of sin, and now we, we call this our, the time of where we are declared or reminded of how God has called us his own, and then that'll move us to an even more intimate spot where God communes with us, and then we have his blessing uh, given to us at the end to go be a blessing, but this is a time where we hear from him in his word, and, um, and it's our practice to give special attention to it, and so uh, just Certainly familiar to many who've been in the church, but I thought just, you know, does, does, the, does the scripture have to be read right now? Is this what, is this what you know, what you learn in seminary? And um, this, is, this is part of how we've structured our service and what we think is um, biblical but also important. So to that, um, we are in Matthew chapter 2. And uh, just a, a review, since this is the fourth Sunday in Advent, we've been in Matthew's gospel looking at the birth narrative through, through Matthew, and if you remember, the first uh, chapter um, in Matthew was the genealogy, and we looked at that, um, how Jesus uh, comes from the line of David, um, and how important that is to Matthew, and then we moved into uh, the next section where we learned that um, another important part of Jesus' birth is that he must be adopted by Joseph and, um, in order to come into the line of David. And uh, this is not all of what Matthew is trying to, to, to prove, but there is a sense that there's an apologetic here uh, in this narrative for him. And as we come into our text this morning, what he is showing us and, and, and proving in many ways is that Jesus is born, was born in Bethlehem, which is another prophecy that he fulfills. So let's look at this together as we give our attention to God's word, found in the book of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when, when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that, had, that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest 
over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word in Matthew's gospel. We pray now that as we've just heard it, as we look at it more closely, that you would be our guide and teacher. Pray that you would open our eyes, open our ears, that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not. Uh, That you would change us by your spirit, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. On April 11th in 2007, this is a story I came across several years ago. You might have heard about it as well. Um, A man by the name of Joshua Bell, uh, one of the most prolific violinists of our time, uh, held an experiment, and this experiment for him was to go play for 45 minutes um, in the New York subway, just as an average person, and just see what kind of response he would get. And you can go Google this and look at it and do that after the service. Um, but what he found was that, well, nobody really paid much attention. Um, there was a camera set up and he's playing. And as you can imagine, people are just walking on by. A couple people stop, maybe notice, um, throw a coin into the, uh, the bucket there. Um, But it's this commentary that I actually want to draw our attention to about that event. And this is what somebody wrote about this. Describing the event, a violinist played for 45 minutes in the New York subway. A handful of people stopped, a couple clapped. And the violinist raised about $30 in tips. But most walked on by. No one knew this, but the violinist was Joshua Bell, one of the best musicians in the world. In that subway, Joshua played one of the most intricate pieces ever written with a violin worth $3.5 million. Two days before he played in the subway, Joshua Bell sold out a Boston theater, and the seats averaged about $100. Now, here's where I find, here's where I want to draw your attention. This is the summary here. The experiment proved that the extraordinary in an ordinary environment does not shine and is so often overlooked and undervalued. But the commentary continues to drive this more into what perhaps might be said is our sort of cultural moment. What do we do with an information or an experiment like this? To which it says, there are brilliantly talented people everywhere who aren't receiving the recognition and reward they deserve. But once they arm themselves with value and confidence and remove themselves from an environment that isn't serving them, they thrive and grow. Your gut is telling you something. Listen to it. If it's telling you where you are isn't enough, go where you are appreciated and valued. Know your worth. I find that the the direction that this commentary takes on this piece to be interesting because it points out something um, that that I think is very true in our culture, and that is the, the premium we put on things of value. The premium we put on value, if you will. 
Um, value, of course, is a very subjective thing, but, but in the company we keep, for example, right, right, the people that we might gravitate towards who uh, might be a people of power and authority, that could be valuable to us and we would put a big premium on that. Might even find ourselves uh, navigating our lives socially based on what value people have and therefore maybe that would rub off on us. By contrast, those that we would consider marginalized, those who would, that we consider sort of uh, off the beaten path, right, don't carry a lot of value in our culture, therefore we don't find ourselves navigating our lives around them. Maybe it's just things, the things we buy. Right? We are uh, dazzled by things of value, rings that glitter, um, the kind of money that floats, right? And it's not in and of itself all bad, but I think we understand that, that, that perhaps what's true in this story, which is true in our own lives, is that in our sort of overlooking by valuing what we put a price tag on, we think is valuable, we have the tendency to overlook and, and to undervalue what is of most value. Because of this, we can overlook, like people in that subway that day, what is of supreme value. And this is also what is happening in our text this morning with Matthew. Jesus comes to us, and in his day, in the way that he comes to us, and and the same would be true if he came today in this way, as one overlooked and as one undervalued, born among livestock in Bethlehem. But here's the point for Matthew. For Matthew, how Jesus comes into this world, how he arrives, right? That's what Advent is right, has no bearing on how you and I are to respond to him. How Jesus arrives, how he comes into this world, whether he's undervalued or under, you know, not, you know, underlooked, whatever, has no bearing on how you and I are to respond to him. And the reason for that is, like Joshua Bell playing in a subway somewhere, it doesn't change who he is. And that's part of Matthew's point. And who is this? Who's Jesus? He's the king of the Jews, which, which is the title, the best title that you could give to say that he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the son of God. And that's what I want us to see this morning, that because Jesus is the Christ, because he is the true king, according to Matthew, everyone, not just a Jewish population over here, but the entire world, must consider how they will respond to his arrival. Our text gives four responses, actually, if you notice them, to the news of Jesus' birth. And so I, I, with our time, want us to look at these and consider our own response to him. And maybe for some of us who have grown up in the church, it isn't so much our own response, but maybe how are we responding to him at this point in our lives? And maybe we would find... Something in the text this morning that would give us direction and guidance uh, for how we should respond to this king of kings. So let's do that this morning as we look at four different responses. First, King Herod. Matthew begins this section telling us that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. 
briefly, these magi or wise men, let's just talk about them for a second, right? They were a bit of a mixed bag of talents in this day. Learned men for sure. Some may have been more of the magician sorcerer type, uh, while others excelled in dream interpretation and perhaps what we might call astronomy today. At this point, we are to understand, as, as Matthew tells us, that they are in Jerusalem asking where the king of the Jews is simply because of their interpretation of what they are seeing in the night sky. All theories put aside, there is clearly a combination of cultural practices, but also of God working supernaturally to guide these men. When kings were born, wealthy dignitaries as these men would have been would travel to pay visit to the king with the best gifts that they could or had to offer. How they use the night sky as a map or message is really unclear to us, but suffice it to say that this is another way that God uses what is common to reveal him, himself and his purposes to man. Now, where has this star led them? To our first guest, King Herod, in Jerusalem, the Jewish king at the time. King Herod, by history's account, started out a decent king, but as he moved into uh, his reign 30 plus years, he grew older and more paranoid. Josephus' historical account of the last years of King Herod support erratic and, for lack of a better term, crazy behavior that Matthew actually records later, just after this text of his uh, decree to kill all male babies two years and younger. According to one source, we find out that in the last decade of his life, he killed three of his own sons. And why? Because of the paranoia or the threat that was imposed on him, perhaps of who would be coming in to take him out and to take his throne, thus removing him from his kingdom. And so beginning in verse 3, we hear his response. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled or agitated, nerved, and all Jerusalem with him. Continuing in verse 4, and assembling the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea. And they begin to quote Micah 5 there. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. We pull back a little bit and assess this at this point. What we have here are our wise men from the east, non-Jewish men, by the way, just to be clear, who have come and are asking about a new king of the Jews, one who has been born and where they can find him. And Herod's immediate reaction, his immediate response is to first do some data collecting by summoning the best minds of Old Testament prophecy that he, can, or that he has access to. That would be the chief priests and the scribes. And he then brings the wise men back to himself, secretly, the text adds, to collect more information in order to establish the age of the child at this point. And this ends, as we read, with Herod sending the Magi to Bethlehem with this phony message, and I'm sure you caught it in the way I read it, oh, please let me know so that I might come and worship him too. Knowing later in chapter 2 that Herod will try to exterminate the boy with a decree to murder all male, males under the age of two, um, we, we know that this is not Herod's intention. The Magi leave. They are led by the same star they saw earlier 
By verse 12, we are told that they are warned in a dream not to return to Herod. And so they depart their own country another way. All of this, all of this is Herod's response. He, he, he gets the lion's share of the narrative here at this point. All of this is his response, uh, specifically that he feels threatened by this news. And we can imagine why, right? One, there is no other king of the Jews if you are king at this point. And if I don't rule out or root out this king or this other child, right, then this will be just another attack on my throne. In this way, Jesus is someone who threatens his legacy, who threatens his identity, but perhaps more, more to the point, threatens his authority and his power. And so Herod's response to this threat is not to disarm, not to lay those things down, it's actually to go on attack. And what is clear from Herod's response is that he is not even close, not even close to paying attention to God's story and his promises to send a king, to send a leader, to send a ruler, to send a shepherd to his people, to Herod himself. When Herod summons the chief priests and scribes, it says in the text that he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Which means that Herod himself is aware of God's story, but is 100% opposed to it. As one commentary writes, Herod is a foe of God, an agent of Satan, an antichrist in the strict sense of the word. Those are strong words. What Herod shows us, though, in his response is that when we rest in any other story or any other narrative about life that doesn't have Christ at the center of it, well, then that is not rest. And we can think about that in a number of different ways, right? As we think about what we might center our own lives around or have at times, or we see others doing the same thing, right? And we can go to the easy one like money, for example, Right, if money becomes a thing that this is, this is what is, is going to be the object of my life, I'm going to center my life around it. We all know what everybody says when they get all the money they want. Is, is, is it enough? No. How much is enough? Just a little bit more. Right? So there's no contentment in that. But, but, but beyond that, right, those who are most wealthy have to live with the burden of, of protecting this wealth. What if it goes away and all the people trying to come in and take it? There's no rest here. But what about personal happiness, something that can sort of blanket all of our lives as we go and pursue the things in, in this world that we think will bring us happiness or even uh, begin to, to put at the center of, of our life our chief purpose to pursue our own personal happiness? Well, if that's the case, then anybody who would say no to you as to what that is becomes a threat to you and must get out of your way. When we navigate life this way, right, we find ourselves building teams of people who will just say yes to us, right? Nobody that really cares for us, nobody that's really willing to uh, say hard things because we don't want to hear them because they are threats to our own personal happiness. Again, here, there is no rest. And one of those reasons that, that interesting enough, even our culture would agree with as far as our sociologists are concerned and our psychiatrists are concerned, is that the place where, the, or the way that happiness comes to us the most in this world is by serving other people, not you're pursuing your own self or, or pursuing your own happiness. What Herod shows us 
in this response is that when we rest in another story or narrative about life, whether it's money or personal happiness or fill in the blank for yourself, right, there is no rest there. When Christ is not at the center of that, there is no rest. There, is, there isn't anything that we can trust. Everything, everything becomes a threat to us. This is what Herod's response is showing us. Herod will go the way of many kings, which is to grow in fear and paranoia of everyone around him even his own family, and to ultimately bring significant harm to those that he should be protecting as king in the first place. Well, this is Herod's response. Let's move on to the next one with our time. Shortly related to this response is is the response of the common people or Jerusalem, as you noted there. Tied closely to this response Uh, of those uh, in Jerusalem, as you notice there uh, in verse 3, that they are troubled alongside of him. Now, it's unclear as to whether they are troubled because uh, Herod is troubled and uh, they are big Herod fans, or if they're troubled because, well, we know what happens when the king gets a little angry. (laughs) So, you know, you can imagine people talking the next day about news of dignitaries from the east coming to pay homage to the king of the Jews and asking the king where to find him. And then the stories of how enraged this guy Herod and after the Magi left, the dread of wondering what is going to happen next. All right, if Herod is not happy, no one is happy. But this response is a problem, right? It's a problem. Jerusalem, God's people, are not to base their lives primarily on the king, right? But what? On the one who appoints kings. This has been the story all along, and that is Yahweh. And if there is news that Yahweh, right, has finally acted in bringing a Messiah, right, the Christ as promised, then it is far better to have an angry Herod on your side than than to be blind to God's true king, Jesus, who is in Bethlehem. Sure, there is a lot to consider for the average Jew living in Jerusalem, but perhaps what their response tells us is what happens when we slowly stop waiting and slowly find ourselves falling asleep and not looking for God to act as he has promised. And instead, shift our alliances to the things of this world, which uh, in Jerusalem could be certain political uh, ventures, as we'll see in a second. But is Jerusalem troubled because uh, their king is crazy or because actually making uh, or responding in the right way to this new king of the Jews will upset their day-to-day lives and the status quo that it brings? If Herod is a foe of God, Jerusalem at best is indifferent, asleep at the moment that God has arrived and is acting on behalf of his people. Well, so far we've looked at two responses, King Herod and and Jerusalem's response given by Matthew. Let's turn now to the chief priests and the scribes in the story. As verse 4 tells us, Herod summons those two groups. Now, who are they? Well, these two groups, as one commentary notes, would have stood at opposite ends of the Jewish social leadership. In some sense, we might compare them to Democrats and Republicans, but in some ways that would be unfair. The chief priests, right, as opposed to ordinary priests here, would have been Sadducees. And from what we, from what we know of Sadducees, we, uh, we know that they were less concerned with preserving Jewish culture and more open to accommodating Roman rule and Greek culture in order to keep what? Their power and their wealth. The scribes, on the other hand, right, they were more conservative. conservative. They were conservative 
Jewish teachers who aimed to preserve their way of life, their Jewish teaching, and their culture at all costs. And any accommodation to Rome, any accommodation to anything else coming in and changing uh, what is most prized, which is their culture, would be despised. And so as you can see, both of these groups do not get along. Why has Herod brought them together? Well, it's actually really clever. Herod brings them together, reasoning that if they both can agree on where this king of the Jews is to be born from the scriptures, then he will know exactly where to go and worship him. Lo and behold, these two groups come together and they give the right answer. Micah 5.2 in Bethlehem in Judea, right? They get it right. Hundreds on all their quizzes in seminary. These folks know the right answer. But what might be easy to overlook is what do they do with the information? Where does this send them? And the short answer is they do nothing. They go home. They do not join with the Magi in celebrating or at least in rejoicing that maybe, just maybe, God has acted as he has promised. Instead, they presumably pat themselves on the back for a good day's work. Look, we helped the king. Let's go home now to dinner. He didn't murder us. In other words, the absence of a response in Matthew's gospel is their response. There wasn't one. They did nothing. They knew all the right information, all the right theology, but it was all up here. It was cerebral. Part of their response, I'm sure, is due to Herod's behavior and decision-making at this point in, that, in time, right? Let's not make any sudden moves amongst an angry, angry king. But another is asking, where is their treasure and where does it really lie? For the chief priests, we could say their treasure is found in preserving their own wealth and power. And for the scribes, as Jesus will tell us, it's preserving their own culture and the way of life that they think is most valuable. And in this way, their hearts couldn't be further from the ultimate treasure waiting them in Bethlehem. Perhaps of all the responses up to this point, the birth of royalty in Bethlehem is most overlooked and most undervalued by the very people, religious people, I might add, who should be leading the way, who should be rejoicing for what God has done in Bethlehem. Well, let's move to the final response, which gives direction to our hearts this Christmas season, the response of the wise men, the Magi. Beginning in verse 9 of Matthew, he writes, After listening to the king, this is the Magi, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by, by another way. Now, we can talk later about whether or not American major scenes, American major scenes are heretical. Um, save that for after. What I'm interested in at this point, and if you didn't catch that, did the, are the Magi there at the birth or they come later? What's this house? There's a lot of good explanations for this. Um, what I'm interested in is, math, is, is the Magi's response, which is what Matthew 
targets. Look at verse 10. When, when they saw the star, which is now resting over the house, what is their response? It is one of exceeding joy, rejoicing. Certainly a contrast in response to the three characters or groups of people that we have looked at already. This joy then follows them into the house, the text says, where the text tells us that they saw the child with Mary's mother and falling to their knees, they worshiped him. Again, a strong contrast to what we have noted so far. Now, to be fair, this doesn't mean that the Magi are quote-unquote quote, quote unquote, born-again Christians worshiping in spirit and truth as we might talk about it today. We actually do not know what their understanding of Jesus is, and that's okay. We don't really need to know to understand Matthew's point, which is it has taken Gentiles from a foreign land with arguably pagan practices to present us with a right response to Jesus. Let me say that again. It has taken Gentiles from a foreign land with arguably pagan practices to present us with a right response to Jesus. And for the moment, this might seem problematic. Why isn't the Jewish king, King Herod, not worshiping? Why not all of Jerusalem? Why not the scholars of the day and the scribes? The religious people. But actually what Matthew is setting up for us here and what will become increasingly clear as his gospel continues is the response to who Jesus is is no longer left to a certain people group, which would be the Jews in this case. The response to who Jesus is is now a responsibility of everyone. Jew or Gentile alike. There is no escape or avoiding it. The question becomes at this point in Matthew's gospel is whose lead will you follow? The rage of Herod, a king, as Jesus threatens what is most precious to him, his power and authority? Or will it be the indifference of Jerusalem or perhaps the status quo in which the chief priests and the scribes are attempting to preserve? Or maybe it's wise men, the most unexpected, who have come from the far east rejoicing and worshiping. In other words, what Matthew is getting us to ask is whose story are we really caught up with? And I would argue that's always, to me, the, the, the point of Christmas is to stop and slow down and ask myself, whose story am I caught up with here? Is it my own? Is it my own dreams or plans for my family? Is it the busyness of life that is just taking me away from, from rejoicing and finding joy in the fact that God has acted? And he's continuing to act, by the way. He is not done. But that it is his story. He is inviting us to be a part of and to rejoice in. Is that the one we're caught up in? Or is it our own? Or is it the story of God's and what he is doing this day? For Christians, so much of our response to this Jesus at this time of year, for sure, is anchored in the way that the rest of the story plays out for this king of the Jews, which has everything to do, everything to do with where he finds himself at the end of Matthew's story. And where does he find himself? On a cross for your sins. In other words, so much of our response uh, as to, to who this child is, is anchored in understanding just what kind of king this baby will be. 
And the cross tells us then that he is not a king bent on preserving his own power and authority in the way that we might expect him to be, or perhaps even in the way that we've experienced others. The cross tells us that Jesus is not a king threatening to dispense of your joy and your blessings, although he might tell you no from time to time. Rather, the cross tells us that Jesus is a servant king, a shepherd king, when willing to use his power and authority, what, for your benefit, not his own. For he has, what, come to serve and not be served. Jesus is not a threat, friends, to your joy and to your blessings, but has come to restore you and give you his blessings. Blessings that far exceed any kingship or crown that can be found on this earth. And he will do this by coming to us in the most undervalued and overlooked ways. The Magi might not have been able to know all of that as they followed the star that led them to Jesus' house and, and, and for them to worship. But perhaps the most troubling news this morning for you is you do. You do. You do know all that. You know exactly what kind of king this is. How are you respond to that? For some, my, my prayer is that it's belief. Whether you've been sitting in a church for 20, 30 years, or whether you've just found yourself here this Sunday, and everybody in between, belief. Believe that Jesus is who the Bible says that he is. For others, maybe it's a call to disarm, to lay down your crown and the kingdom that you are preserving and to take up your cross and follow this Jesus. For others, though, it is a reminder why we worship him in the first place. Because what Matthew is telling us is nothing short, that he is God. Jesus is God. As Michael Williams says, the Old Testament is an uncompleted story, a promise waiting for its fulfillment. Jesus is that fulfillment. This is who has arrived. This is who is here. This is the news that the king of all kings is born. Let us worship him. Let us give our best to him, which is where the story concludes. Right, the Magi bringing their gifts and then being warned in a dream not to return to Herod. They have offered the king their very best in gold and frankincense and myrrh. Would we also do the same? Not because we are unsure of who Jesus is or unsure of what kind of king he'll be, but because the cross shows us exactly, exactly what kind of king he is. One despised and rejected for the sake of his people. If I can come back to this Joshua Bell commentary, as I read it to you, in the direction that it takes, of getting you to consider what is most valuable is, is you, your worth, your appreciation. And that if, if the environment that you find yourself in isn't serving you, then, then you need to go to a place 
where it is. Go where you are appreciated and valued. Know your worth. And as I read that, I can't think of a greater contrast than what the gospel proclaims to you this morning. The gospel, Jesus tells us something very different, doesn't it, right? The cross tells us something different. It is because the king went where he wasn't appreciated, where he wasn't valued, that has actually changed everything for you. That's the way of this king. You want to know your value? You want to know your worth? You want to care about those things? Look at the cross. Look at the cross. Your king is trying to tell you. May our hearts be caught up with that story this Christmas. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We pray that as we look at the responses of those in Scripture, and and they are not limited to Herod, they're not limited to those in Jerusalem or the chief priests and the scribes. As we go throughout Matthew's gospel, we are confronted with people from all walks of life, all with the responsibility now to respond to the great news that you have arrived that you are the true king. And while none of us could sort of uh, prepare ourselves for where that would lead you, would, would that in many ways be the anchor that softens our hearts, that stays us, that causes our hearts to believe, that gives us strength for this time of year and where we find ourselves to know that you truly are God, that you've given yourself to us. And for that, we can trust you. Would you do that work in us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.